The following pod contains spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Hey friends, for those that really know me, know that I love picnics. But not just any picnic, I'm talking all-out, fancy, make-other-picnics-around, jealous kind of picnics. However, it does take a lot of time and effort to put these picnics together, and for some reason, none of my friends ever want to help out. Gosh. That's why I go to Experiences by K. Experiences by K is a Bay Area luxury picnic business that can be set up just about anywhere from the beach, park, your backyard, and more. Simply go to the website, book your picnic, show up, and enjoy good times with your friends, worry-free. Great for birthdays, anniversaries, proposals, you name it. Go to experiencesbyk.com right now for your upcoming occasion and check out Experiences by K on Instagram at experiencesbyk. Hey there, it's Ray here. I first want to thank you for listening to this episode and encourage you to reach out to us and let us know what you think. The best way to do so is to follow us on Instagram at Real Asian Podcast and send us a message. Let us know what movie you want us to talk about or even if you're interested on in coming onto the show, we'll be happy to have you on. Again, find us on Instagram. That's at Real Asian Podcast. And if you support the show and you really like us, go to realasianpodcast.com slash support. Now, on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Real Asian Podcast. I'm here with Alan and Renee. How y'all doing? Doing great. What's up? Happy uh, November. Happy November. So we are recording this about two days, three days away from election night. Um, so it's going to be quite uh, an eventful week coming up. Quite a doozy. And hopefully a really good Asian representation, right? That's for sure. <laughs> That's, for sure. <laughs> That's right. You know, I also do want the record to show that I recently just had shoulder surgery, so I'm in a sling right now. So I say that because at any point during this episode, if I'm factually incorrect or seem a little bit off, it's because (laughs) of the shoulder, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not at my 100%. Ray's highly medicated. I get it. (laughs) Podcasting requires 100% of physical body. So if I'm not there... You know, it's like when the shoulder isn't fully cranked and like, you know, only 95% of factually correct stuff comes out. <laughs> yeah. So at any point, someone says like, you know, that Crazy Rich Asians episode, you seemed a bit off. I'm like, yeah, it's the shoulder. It's the shoulder. <laughs> exactly. So we are talking about Crazy Rich Asians. I think it was a, it's about time that we can finally talk about this. And I don't think I need to say it's probably one of the more recent big Asian American movies that came out in Hollywood. It was heralded by being an all-Asian cast, um, and I do believe it came out sometime in August in 2018. So, Alan, start things off with you. Let's go. Does Crazy Rich Asian get too much credit for being a a milestone in mainstream Asian-American representation, or was it well-deserved? It's deserved. I think that the film was really good. It was funny. It turned rom-coms a bit on its head. And it really gave Asians, I, I guess Asian Americans, Asian Singapore, Asian whatever, uh, an opportunity <laughs> to be yeah. Asian Asian. It, gave, Asian. it <laughs> gave Asians, uh, but I'll go into the details later of how it kind of erased a little bit of other portions of Asians in Malay or in Singapore. Um, but it gave them a platform from which other Asians can build upon. And I think the hype was real. It was mm. a fun film. It gave uh, people a chance to say like, yeah, like I know people like that and they can kind of see themselves in that view. Um, it was good. Okay. What do you think, Renee? 
I'm going to have to respectfully disagree just a teeny bit. Um, How dare just, you? <laughs> <laughs> well, just so you understand, Crazy Rich Asians actually received a $30 million uh, marketing budget, right? So, Woo. of course, there's going to be hype. Um, I would say that it was more scant as far as foreign appeal, but as far as marketing here in the U.S., you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Asian American representation has a very interesting kind of history here in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it goes back all the way to the early 19th century. And, you know, when you're talking about Charlie Chan as kind of our representation, right? So, you know, to, to kind of say that, um, Crazy Rich Asians helped to get us on the map. Not necessarily, you know. I would, mm-hmm. I would definitely say that the hype was was real, definitely. But as far as making bringing Asian American representation into the forefront, I would definitely say that yes, the all star cast really helped to shine. It was very polished. Director did an amazing job being able to do that. But I would say that, you know, there were plenty, plenty of movies before its time that also uh, were very influential. So too much credit. Yes, but it did, it, there are some deserved, um, but lukewarm, not, not too hyped. <laughs> it's, okay. So I had a, dis- I had a conversation uh, with a friend of mine around the time when this movie came out and it seemed as though that when Crazy Rich Asians came out, and it was objectively a decent movie, entertaining, but when I had the discussion, the issue that my friend had was that all of a sudden people were coming out the woodwork was like, yes, I'm proud to be Asian American. And huh. all of a sudden, like, you know, we're being represented. And she was like, hey, you know, there's a lot of films that have been around for a long time that has been doing it before Crazy Rich Asians. And just because of the marketing, like you said, Renee, that Crazy Rich Asians did, a lot of people didn't do their due diligence. And again, just kind of riding on that wave. I mean, is that fair to say? And I, I felt at the time I was kind of like, that's a little bit too harsh. And and I think overall, the, there's a net positive. Yes, some people are kind of like riding on that wave just because you know, the prerequisites that they look Asian, they're kind of jumping on the bandwagon. I was like, overall, at least some people were starting to recognize and be proud of who they are. Can I can I respond to that really quickly? I I hate it when people say stuff like that, where it's like, oh, like Crazy Rich Asians only pop it because it had a huge marketing budget. It's like, well, no shit. But I mean, it gives other people who are not Asian Americans to be like, okay, like, Clearly, there's an audience for this. So, like, there's going to be, you know, opportunities for Hollywood to make money off of that. And that's the reality of it. Mm. And so, what's not, why do people hate on that? It's not supposed to represent every single Asians in Asian uh, <laughs> uh, groups, but yeah. it's, it, it shows to execs as like, there's opportunity to be made. Let's use this as a, a spring path to go forth with other stories in the future. Well, okay, how about this? I want to say, you know, when you look at the the film, the people who are being represented highly are East Asians, yes. right? You're looking at Chinese. And the only South Asian that shows up in Crazy Rich Asians, right, are the guards at the very front, and that's yes. it. They don't yes. make any appearance after that. So it's really – so I understand, to Alan's point, like, it's not just popular, and it's, it definitely isn't going to just represent – all Asian, we shouldn't be looking to one movie. You know, that's basically my main criticism is that Singapore in particular is known for having uh, Chinese, Malaysian, Indian, mm-hmm. and then other, right? 
the the CMIO. I would have liked there to be a little bit more South Asian representation, but also at the same time, I totally I, I totally understand, right? This is also crazy rich. Who are the ones who are holding the most power in mm-hmm. Singapore? So I, okay, so there is a take that I have in concern of that that we'll probably go into later in terms of just the extraordinary amount of consumerism and luxury that the movie portrays. You know, referencing this essay that that I read, basically about like the assimilation of whiteness and you know playing the part using the power of capitalism, which is historically used by the white powers that be. I think by this time, everyone knows that I'm always going to look at it from a socioeconomic perspective. I'm like, hold on, wait a minute. But let's talk about the movie in itself. What are some of your guys' favorite scenes? I think first top of mind that I really noticed that I really enjoyed watching the scene, the most rewatchable scene is Rachel's lunch with Pinklin's family where we're introduced to Ken Jong. Any other scenes that you guys... Uh, really could just kind of watch over again. One of those things where if you saw it on TV, you know, just watch it all the way through. I think my favorite one is the uh, is Rachel's Cinderella moment when she's and going through all the different clothing. Um, oh yeah, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of really good just kind of chemistry brewing there, um, and you know, it kind of it gets the entire family involved, which is definitely very much so. Like, in, I feel like it's a very Asian thing. For an example. During the um, annual Hmong New Year, uh, as we're all getting dressed, everyone is involved in putting on the multiple layers of clothing um, and sometimes going through the many different uh, costumes that we have. What about you, Alan? What are some of your favorite scenes? Uh, very easily anything with Aquafina's character in it. Uh, she's <laughs> super funny. I think my favorite part was when they drive to the, the house party. Um, and you know, typically oh, yeah. in Asian cultures, they deny twice and then they accept. And so she's like, "No, I can't come in. No, I can't come in." All right, let's and do this. Like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, "Okay, fuck yeah, I'm down." And she has like a cocktail dress. She has a, uh, well, I forget the other dresses labeled for it, but she, you know, she has multiple dresses a walk for of shame. Occasions. A walk yes, of shame. Yeah. Walk of shame. Uh, so I, I mean, I just loved her character. Obviously, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of controversy in how she was portrayed. Outside of that, um, I felt that her character was funny. Uh, anytime I watch that, and I, I'm just pressured to continue watching through. Renee, do you have any situational dresses or outfits like Aquafina? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> is, that, is that something <laughs> that you're like, yes, I can relate? Well, okay. So for an example, you know, when I would commute into San Francisco before the pandemic, of course, um, I would have my Peak Design bag and it has several different uh, compartments. I love Peak Design. I love Peak Design too. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to get that sponsorship. Right. <laughs> All about it. Yes. Sponsor us. Um, yeah. So each compartment would have a different type of clothing. I would have, you know, like gym clothing in there, extra change and a pair of clothing then i would actually have like an extra set of shoes specifically to maybe even go get a drink with ray down the at a one of the bars oh man what was the, what was the name of the bar that we met up once novella novella good old novella but yeah i absolutely have a situation of clothing and that's just in my on my backpack right if i had a whole car you know probably be a little bit different cocktail and then you've got your walk of shame <laughs> which is you know which I, I was like wait if you had a walk of shame outfit wouldn't the walk of shame outfit be the outfit that you wore last night well that's the that's the, yeah. definitely the point right but when yeah. you've got that much money you might as well that's just... true it, it's also funny because how can you have a walk of shame and then drive that nice ass out, out? <laughs> <laughs> it's like 
What is that? <laughs> also, uh, another favorite scene of mine is the dumpling making scene, obviously. And they're kind oh. of all putting in the dumpling. And there's that tension between Eleanor and Rachel. I chose to help my husband run a business and to raise a family. For me, it was a privilege. But for you, you may think it's old fashioned. It's nice you appreciate this house and us being here together wrapping dumplings. But all this doesn't just happen. It's because we know to put family first instead of chasing one's passion. So it's like a passive aggressive stab, like, ah. It's not even passive aggressive. It's straight up like, bitch. It's straight up. Yeah. <laughs> it's also funny. It's like, to me, I was like, it doesn't just happen, but it also helps a lot by having a super wealthy husband. Yeah. So even though she didn't get physical, she'd absolutely just like beat the shit out of everyone with her crazy rich tongue, right? Yeah, so she yeah. absolutely sliced Rachel down to size. The idea, obviously, that kind of highlights the typical, prototypical, classic Asian-American struggle that we probably touched upon in previous movies is the idea of collectivism versus individualism. And that's that, that push and pull between Eastern Asian philosophy of everything, family as a unit versus American individualism. And there's that generational clash between um, Eleanor and Rachel. Yeah, I have a question, actually, you know, the, to relate to it and really just as a jumping off point. But I was curious, you know, how many of you are first generation born? I'm first generation. As well. I'm first generation as well. Okay. We're all first generation. And so, you know, with that being the case, do you still feel like you really gravitate towards needing community in your family or needing community within your uh, Asian identity? Um, or do you feel like you can kind of travel on your own and, you know, without that burden of familial? <laughs> um. I, and I'll be honest, I sometimes appropriate and use the family as a unit when it's convenient for me. And, you know, interesting enough, Alan is on this recording session as a cousin, but, you know, those, those moments of family gatherings and stuff like that, I look forward to, but on a day to day in terms of what I'm thinking about, I'm doing and pursuing my passion for me and not necessarily to say, oh, I want to invest in my family's business or I want to you know, I think in a weird way, I want to be successful to be able to take care of my family. Right. But it's not to be able to sacrifice, you know, my own aspirations for a family business. Now, we used to have a family restaurant. Restaurant. Right. We, had, we, owned a, we used to own a Chinese restaurant. And I guess if that was still the case, an example of that could have been like, you know, I'm not going to pursue podcasting or I'm not going to do whatever because I, I'm going to become a manager, the owner of the family restaurant and keep that going. But- the family, the restaurant ended up not working out anyways. Restaurant business is super hard. Yeah. That to me tells me that I am very much more leaning on the individualism side of things. I see. I'd love to hear from you too, Alan, since cuz fam. Yeah. The, I like the way that Raina phrased it. I, I do tend to use fam, familial community-based relationships when it's convenient to me. I'm very individualistic. I broke away from a lot of traditional norms in my life. Uh, but that's primarily because growing up, I had such a very, very strict parents who wanted myself and my sister to behave a certain way. And um, given the situation, the circumstances that I grew up in, I had to break paths to find my own way to be successful. And it caused me to very much pursue something that very different from most Asian American families or young men uh, in today's day and age. 
but at the same time, like I, I do think that there's, uh, you know, what's that meme where the girl's like, why not both? <laughs> I, I do tend to lean on both sides. Uh, I do really love the familiar or the community family aspect of my life. And I use that a lot. And, you know, I, I've retaught myself Vietnamese. I improved my Vietnamese for the sake of talking to my parents. So that's why I can speak it very, pretty fluently now. Could you do this, the rest of this episode in Vietnamese then? I probably would maybe do like 90% of it Vietnamese, wow. but I don't want to because it's really bad. <laughs> but then like, again, it's, it's like, it's, it's all because like, I wanted to improve that relationship with my mom and dad. And I don't like them speaking broken English because it makes me go back to this time when I used to regret my parents' lack of English. So I put myself in that position to learn my family's native tongue, which is actually Cantonese, not Vietnamese, but learn Vietnamese because they spoke Vietnamese mostly. I love that. Um, for me, I would say that in, in my culture, it's not necessarily about taking up the mantle and running the family business. There is none. Uh, you know, we were mostly farmers, um, and like that's it. Like we lived in huts and villages in the mountainside of Laos, and so we there. You know, we we don't have like anything to our name, and so for us, it actually is our name. Um, and so there was like an, an immense amount of pressure for me to not shame the family name. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what does that mean? Well, for being a Hmong woman, it meant that I had to be like a, the best wife, right? Like grooming me to be really good at cleaning and cooking and taking care of kids. Um, and what's interesting is that it doesn't say exactly what Eleanor's background is but you could be sure to know that she's educated yeah she she was studying law right exactly she gave it all up to be a housewife right and that is exactly <laughs> what uh asian women kind of have to be domesticated mm. and for me um i immediately instantaneously as soon as i could even have my own independent thought knew that i never wanted to change my last name when i got married and i knew that i was not going to be just some docile woman taking care of the children um and i even told my husband at the time when we first started dating i said you know um i'm going to be the breadwinner and you can be able to stay at home and take care of the kids you're like let me set this straight okay <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly i'm like if you even think we're going to get close to being uh you know in a real relationship this is basically how it's going to be so yeah i definitely i definitely am someone who very much so is an individual but at the same time you know it is my family name that i continue to hold on and and it only recently became something where i the pressures of making sure that that name looked good no longer bothered me but i know that you know, my name goes out there when I'm doing interviews, um, you know, with news and when I'm writing my articles and when I'm doing all this stuff, it's my name. My name? What's in a name? Who am Who I? Who am I? <laughs> <laughs> Do you go climb up to the mountaintop every morning? And who am he is I? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, that's Jackie, Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan. Uh, police story? Oh, man, classic. We got to do one of those. That's so good. <laughs> So here's the question, though. Here's what I consider, and if I, if I put it in the context of Crazy Rich Asians, more so specifically to Nick Young's case, because if I imagine myself, 
okay, what if I, if my family was wealthy and just had like a, a very stable, successful business, I honestly feel like, yeah, I, I can pursue one's passion as an option, but if things don't work out, I can fall back and be like, knowing that in the back of my mind, I got family money that I can softly land on, like a safety yeah. net, right? Because yeah. that changes how you experience the world, how you experience, Absolutely. you know, um, the pressure. You don't necessarily have that pressure. You know, first of the thing, one of the critiques that I have about the movie is that Nick has this show and dance to say like, I'll give this all up just to marry you. We'll go back to New York and start our own life. But they'll, at the end of the movie, I don't think he actually gives it up because they stay one more night in Singapore. And then the movie ends with them celebrating on top of the iconic um, <laughs> tower. So I'm like, wait, Nick, did you give something up? Because you got you got best of both worlds. You got the girl and the, to keep your family money. So I was kind of like, wait a minute now. This is the perspective that I want to go ahead and say. She told him no. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yeah. he said, okay, consent, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So he was like, I'm going to take my money. <laughs> No, but he did try, right? He flew her mom all the way over from New York to try to convince her, right? You know, he I think he did play his cards that he had knowing that she was an American girl who wasn't going to just be brainwashed to think. But that, from my perspective, I want to say, yes, he did get to keep best of both worlds, but I think he did also try his best. And then he fell back to what he knew, which was just, okay, if you said no, then I'm going to stay here and just kind of lick my wounds for a little bit. Classic. So the moral to all guys is that don't be needy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Real quickly. Um, so like this film is obviously made for a westernized audience where they value individualism over uh, familial traditions. Now, do you think if it was made from a different perspective, such as for a more Asian audience, do you think it would have painted individualism? or pursuing one's passion in a different light than how this movie was portrayed. Hmm. Right. Because like, think about it. Um, they, they clearly said, if you're from them, if you're, you're foreign, you're not from, you're not one of us, you value individualism, passion, whatever. And we value this. But then the movie in general sets out to say like pursuing one's passion is ultimately the choice that you should be doing. And staking with your family, is not necessarily the best choice. And this, these are the things you really would be giving up family heritage, tradition, whatever, for the sake of pursuing a woman who wants yeah. to, you know, <laughs> pursue her passions. I, I feel like if that was the case, maybe like the narrative was more so on like towards Eleanor's, the mom's perspective, you know, giving that she kind of warns Nick and, and them finding out that Rachel's family came from, you know, controversy, the way she kind of describes it. You know, Rachel would leave and Nick, you know, saying like, okay, I understand that, but I can't leave my family. And that would be the end of it. <laughs> but obviously that's not a love story because, you know, the, the, the ideas for that, she loves this one man and he loves her and they'll do, they're willing to give everything up and challenge the status quo of both their family and their situation for each other. That's true. Actually, I think it's a situational thing, right? The thing is you don't, you don't get to choose who you fall in love with. Some people are willing to sacrifice some core pillars of who they are for the right person for different reasons, right? But I will definitely say, kind of going back, you know, when you're asking the narrative, would it be different or how how was it received actually in Asia? Um, 
in China. Not well. Not well. It didn't receive very well in the opening, uh, you know, weekend. It only grossed 1.24 million, and yeah. that's very, very weak. Um, even with this kind of a uh, little bit of an all-star cast and and newbies, um, and I think a lot of it did have to do with the fact that you are kind of poo-pooing on a culture yeah. um, who doesn't, uh, and it's also uh, it can potentially be seen as propaganda as well. So, you know, when you're talking about exchange of of culture, um, part of it is like there's there's a soft power that goes around and that is transformed in, in entertainment. And you, so Korea's soft power is, you know, BTS. <laughs> and is that soft power? I feel like BTS is power <laughs> everywhere. It's, it's a super hard. <laughs> it's true power. A superpower, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but America's soft power is their entertainment, and so you know a, a lot of a lot of countries really look to the United States for their entertainment, and so that's one way that you know Disney does that all the time. They did it with Mulan. <laughs> so, uh, Mulan, terrible movie. <laughs> But yeah, that's basically one way to look at it, right? Like, and I don't, I basically would say, like, when you look at the numbers, it just didn't translate. So when you mentioned that it bombed in China doing 1.2 million, um, I read this report from the Asian reporter that, you know, one of the critics in China said that Chinese audiences are pretty much used to seeing all Asian cast, but also all Asian production. That's because in China, they're all Asian. Right. So have seeing Asian, like being marketed as like, oh my gosh, this is an all Asian cast, kind of loses its novelty over in China. They're like, what? Okay, that's something that we're used to all the time. Here's something that also was interesting. So the report was back in 2018 or shortly after Crazy Rich Asians. Alan, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this, is that the report said it's a little bit worrying that they they didn't do this well in China. Why American movie productions should be worried is because Mulan boasts also an almost entirely Chinese cast. <laughs> One of the critics over there said that the film's success will be based on how authentic it feels to Chinese audiences. However, they think, will this just be another movie about Chinese culture with Americans, uh, America's own interpretation? Exactly. And again, that was back in December 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... How how interesting they for, they called it, and it's exactly the same thing, you know. How peculiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, on that note, I'll expand on it because I read a report on the Wall Street Journal where uh, they went to China and interviewed a couple of uh, uh, folks in China who wanted to see the movie, and the big takeaway was, you know, how this is what uh, Mister Yu said, who was a an audience member who watched the movie, he just said, you know, we're either shown as backwards and dirty or wealthy with no morals. Mm. Americans just don't understand us. I know rich people in China and they don't act like that at all. And so this is in reference to like, you know, exactly what you talked about. Americans or Asian Americans think that in order to capture uh, an Asian audience, they perceive what Asians are. But then there's no nuance into the story. Like obviously like this is just one aspect of it is based on a book that Kevin Kwan wrote of just rich ass Chinese Singaporeans. Yes. So that's the that's the that's the audience or the people that he's portraying in the book. So it's not supposed to address all the Asians in it, but because it's so hyped up as like, oh, it's diverse cast, it's this, it's all these things, it provides like a, a misnomer into what it really is. It's just a small speck into the Asian story. Right. I'm really glad that you actually brought up the author Kevin Kwan. Uh there was a article with the Atlantic back um in July where they interviewed him and it talked about it. And actually Quan left Singapore when he was 11. Mm. But just so you understand, like 
just how I don't know, would you call it westernized? I mean, like it's uh, Singapore was colonized by the British, and right, so right. in his family, they all spoke English. And like they would occasionally speak like Cantonese. So if you want to look at it from that lens, then they moved. So you can look at it as a Singaporean expat living in Houston, uh, who spoke, who was basically nearly a wasp. Basically, for those who don't know, is a Western. What is it? A wasp is a Western Anglo-Saxon Protestant, right? And for for all intents and purposes, it is a Asian wasp wannabe looking back onto his earlier life when he was uh, up to 11 years old in Singapore, right? So it's just like it's this um, odage to to basically being like, oh, the good old days when we were rich, right? <laughs> so um, it's really interesting to kind of do that uh, that kind of multi lens view into it. Mm-hmm. It's it's it is a lot bigger than life, right? It's you know a stranger than fiction kind of thing when you when you kind of read some of his works, and that's how it translated onto the screen. Let's go ahead and take a quick break here, and then we'll come back. Hey, real Asian listeners, the best way that you could support us is by giving us a five star review on iTunes, or simply hitting the follow button on Spotify. And by being able to do that, you can be able to make it so that other people that might be interested in Asian cinema can be able to listen to us. It's as simple as that. All right, everyone, we are back from our break. So Crazy Rich Asians, box office smash, usually with any kind of box office smash, immediately people start talking about a sequel in the making. I mean, you know, if it makes money, why not make more money kind of thing? One of the articles I read or found out that was one of the screenwriters, Adele Lim, was tied to write part of the sequel. But the problem is, is that she was offered an eighth or paid an eighth of her co-writer's salary, who's a white screenwriter. Um, I think he was offered like 800000 and she was only offered like 100000 And the reasoning behind that, Warner Brothers says, it was because her previous work and the way that the system or the the way that they quote pay salaries for writers is that they go off of their previous work. And Adele at the time, Crazy Rich Asians, before Crazy Rich Asians, mostly wrote television. So because of that, now she, I think she left the project. She was like, F this, I don't want to take, you know, I don't want to take a pay cut. Renee, does that worry you? One, does it worry you that Crazy Rich Asians 2 is now it's going to be a little bit shaky you know that the one of the original screenwriters is gone but also can you touch upon in terms of like this continuing gender pay disparity that is just constantly happening across hollywood so i think one of the biggest things is that you know for adele she actually became pretty well known then in the industry and has taken on some very big um things like she's working on the latest Raya the Last Dragon with Disney for an example. Can't wait. And yeah, I'm so excited for it too. And and a couple of other really high profile um titles um that's going to be out there. Well, one of the, the biggest things is that the when you take a look at the race and gender wage uh gap disparities, you know, part of it is you have to disaggregate it. Yeah, it's known that women make about 80% of what, you know, a white man would, but you have to actually tease it out even more. One of the things that um, when you take a look at, you know, the earning power for um, Asians in general, like there, you can actually, they actually break it down. 
aapidata.com actually did a really good breakdown. If you go to their website, you can be able to see and you you can be able to see that like Asian women and specifically when you break it down to like, you know, like Hmong women, for an example, make about 60 cents to to a dollar um, and and it just keeps going down further and further whereas for an example if you take a look at the highest earning um, Malaysians actually earn a dollar 23 over a dollar in Taiwanese and the next with um, a dollar 20 basically so you know these are the the highest performing um, like Asian uh, gender not only gender but race right um in comparison to the other people who are making money in the in the same amount of space and so you know it's really important to disaggregate it as well so even so when she's saying that she made an eighth from what her uh co-workers did then yeah it's true you know it really does equal out to that so you know, I think it's really important to take a look at that. Um, even though she didn't receive the same amount of opportunities at that moment in 2018 when they were trying to spin up the next the sequel, uh, just take a look at her success now in 2020, where she's actually being able to be tapped for other things. And then you take into account the audience members who actually went to go and see it. Yeah, I mean, what was interesting is that Asian Americans came out in droves to go see this movie. Forty uh, percent of theater audiences, when it's regularly around like six percent. When big studios see that, though, I again, the cynic part of me says like, "Hmm, this is good business." All they care about is like, "Oh, they got the money. We're gonna continue, you know, making these kinds of movies, so that way we can make money off of them." But my, my quick push is, is that necessarily a bad thing? I think it has to walk with caution for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's progress. I think it's progress, but it's not the finish line. And I think for me, we, some people kind of get lost. And here's my, my critique about that. I can imagine a liberal white person seeing a movie like Crazy Rich Asian thinking, gee, racism has been fixed in America because you're seeing Asian people. Obama's elected. Racism is over. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Obama's elected. What are you talking about? Black people, Black Panther, you know, one minute. What are you talking about? You know, crazy rich Asians are in Hollywood. What are you talking about? You know, Asians like that is my thing about that is that it yeah. creates this this illusion that racism is all well and good by showcasing these talents. I like it. From an artistic perspective, finally kind of thing. But the work, the real work still needs to be done. Yeah, actually, I remember I was talking to someone about this. I was talking to some white guy. I was in the army and I was like, I was like, there's not enough Asian people in the movies. And this was around like 2012 when I was well in my career in the military. He's like, what are you talking about? Bruce Lee's in the movies? Oh my God. <laughs> Bro, how long ago? I wasn't even alive. <laughs> he was like, yeah, but Bruce Lee's pretty badass. He was like, Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan. I was like. Oh my god. <laughs> Racism is over. Yeah, yeah. So I wanna go oh. ahead and note two things. One thing is I have a Indian friend and she's actually a one point five generation. So that means that someone who was born o uh, overseas but then also lived here um growing up during the formative years. And is that one point so five or is that more point five? That's one point five because you oh, know, like okay. she she may have been born there and in, in India and lived there until she was about like six, but then she lived in the United States from six all the way through uh, primary school, middle school, high school, college, went to UC Irvine, things like that, right? So if like the longer you spend in the native country, 
the the increase the decimal point is that so it becomes 1.7 1.8 yeah is there is there a formula i need to know no they also call it third culture that's another yeah, yeah. term as third well culture, I, I, heard, yeah. I have heard yeah, i've heard of it yeah yeah and so one of the things was that you know she's like you know people keep saying that oh asian representation just go watch any asian film you know like and then bollywood huge right huge oh, money huge. making industry right and so yeah you know she's like i didn't care that they didn't have indians in there because like we have our own movies that kind of thing i said but that's not the point of what this movie was right it was about asian americans and so when you take into account that yes a nearly 40 it was like 38 percent or so are, are asian americans watching this in the u.s 40 percent of them were white so you're taking into account again that soft power that uh, singapore has so what I was trying to explain to her was that, yes, I understand you can be able to just go watch any Asian film if you wanted representation like that. But what you're really doing is that someone in you know Nebraska is watching this film and being like, oh, so Asians can be rich too, right? And just like implanting that seed. And you know, it sounds nefarious or it seems like, you know, like, okay. You're not far off though. I don't yeah. think. So, and then when you take into account the, the, the U.S. median household income, right? This is the aggregate of all U.S. In- incomes. Uh, this was uh, back in 2013, 2015. So equitablegrowth.org actually put a graph together that was based off of the U.S. Cens- uh, Census Bureau that said the median household income is 50 57,000. When you take a look at Asian American and Pacific Islander, though, 74,000, right? So it's a, a huge amount more than the normal median income of the of the general population in the United States. So yes, it is a cash grab <laughs> because on top of that, you have Asian Indians make 100,000 as their median household income. Filipinos are uh, you know, below that at about 80, 85,000. Um, and then Taiwanese, right, at the, around the same. So those are your top three median in- household incomes. They don't have China. I'm very curious. The, so they broke it down by specific ethnicities within Asians. So it was, it was Indian, Filipino, uh, Filipino, Taiwanese, Sri Lankan, Japanese, Malaysian, other Asian, Chinese. Really interesting. Is, oh, is this is this ranked? Yes, it is ranked. This one oh, is ranked. So I can be able to definitely show you, and we should definitely put it up on. We can put it on. We'll put it on the Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> on Facebook. Yeah, I love looking at numbers. You have to take into account Chinese and Japanese have actually, and Indian too, but they've been here since the 1800s right mm-hmm. so you were having to take a look at the the households uh household income of those who live and only in chinatown who've been there for multi-generations and basically mm-hmm. don't have uh, a lot of uh, extra income laying around because that's just they kind of stayed in these little bubbles these little pockets right can i just very quickly this is about the movie not macro sense but go, going back to um, Astrid's character, she is so bad at hiding her shit. Like, <laughs> towards the end, when she has a $1.2 million fucking earring, she has it on top of her fucking mirror. What the fuck is that? She's like, oh, I was trying to hide my wealth. Bitch, you had it right there. Like, she's like, I try to hide my wealth to, to make, and I get it. Like, I, I'm empowered by her, but like, what the fuck kind of hiding space is that on, on top of a fucking mirror? Is it because she's. Sh- the dude is shorter than her. He won't be able to reach it. What the fuck oh. is this? Oh, you know what? That's- Jesus. She's like, I, I'm going to put this at six feet up. Yeah. She's like, I know my man is only, for American, my man is only five foot six. <laughs> Way out of his reach. You don't know what this is. I can hide my wealth in plain sight. 
Maybe she was trying to hide it, but not really try to hide it. You know? Yeah. Okay, but can we go back to Gemma Chan's character? My favorite, favorite line actually comes from her. Hey, look, you know it's not just my fault that things didn't work out. You're right. I shouldn't have kept things from you. Hidden my shoes, turned down jobs, charity work, worrying that it might make you feel lesser than. But let's be clear. The problem with our marriage isn't my family's money. It's that you're a coward. You gave up on us. But I've just realized it's not my job to make you feel like a man. But I can't make you something you're not. I love that line. Woo, oh, woo. can I just tell you the thunderous applause that broke out in this theater was deafening. They're like, yeah, yes, bitch. Yes, yes bitch. Like, she should have ended it by saying, bitch. Okay, who actually saw it in the theater? And did anyone else's theater actually break out? I think I saw saw it in the theater. Mine didn't break out, but when I heard that, well, actually, also when I was re watching it again, I was like, damn, that was a cold line. I didn't realize how (laughs) savage. Okay, so let me ask you guys prior to that scene, was Rachel's scene with Eleanor Young? So I just wanted you to know that one day, when he marries another lucky girl who is enough for you, and you're playing with your grandkids while the tanghuas are blooming and the birds are chirping, that it was because of me. A poor, raised by a single mother, low-class immigrant. Nobody. Then boom. She slams down the Bonjong pieces. And I was like, damn, I have no idea what those pieces mean. And I, like, <laughs> I think that's good. I think that's good. You know, what if it would be funny? She slammed it down, but she lost. She's like, here it is. I got to leave because I lost. Yeah, exactly. We have, I have no idea whether she won or lost. She just slammed it down. Okay. There was someone who actually did a really intense deep dive of each single character. So it was actually really good because uh, each each tile actually has a specific meaning. But yeah, oh, okay. it actually had a very powerful meaning that when she went boom, you know, that people who understood totally got was totally part of that joke. There's like half of the theater is like, oh, <laughs> it's like it, my half ass internet research when she slammed down. So it's like it is because of me that Nick Young is <laughs> like, wow, what a great translation. I didn't know Bajong was like that. <laughs> oh my god, that'd be hilarious. <laughs> So which one's more savage though, Astrid or it was Rachel? Which one, if you had to take, if you had to choose which one, I'm gonna go with Astrid. Astrid, easily. Astrid, hands down. Yeah, because um, Rachel's was too was too intellectual, right? <laughs> too intellectual. Yeah. Astrid's just right in your face, like slap. Ugh. Ugh. Okay. All right. The reason why I, I felt Astrid's more powerful uh, is because with Rachel's scene, it's like if I was the mom, I'm like, yeah, cool. Go with me. I still got that power and money. Peace. Right. <laughs> okay, but Rachel's mom had a cameo in it too. She stood up and gave that side look to Eleanor. She was like, mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. First of all, again, her mom just left the game. Like, what the heck? Like, she, <laughs> was know. she in the middle of that? Game? I would definitely say. Uh, Rachel's um, was definitely going to be Eleanor talking shit to her group of people. Asterisk was definitely something close to the chest that she's not going to be able to tell anyone else about, right? So I, I think, I think you know, 
Eleanor would definitely be able to survive that sick burn by Rachel, whereas Astrid just basically just totally decimated, and there was yeah. a you know a cloud of smoke where he was vaporized. Damn, yeah, got him good. She left that hot bod to go for Harry shoot, uh, oh, yeah. Harry shoot Dreamer's hot bod. Yeah, oh yeah. So she won. She totally won. <laughs> Speaking of Harry, Harry Shum Jr., I mean, I think he was originally supposed to be in the movie, but his scenes were cut out. But I also read that he's supposed to be in the sequel, right? Supposed to be in the sequel. I think it's going to be more focused on Astrid's character. Crazy Rich Girlfriend, I believe. I'm never going to name a daughter Astrid because it reminds me of the Office episode where Jan, Jan's daughter is named Astrid or Astrid and people keep calling it Astrid. <laughs> Astrid. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a name for me. <laughs> it's okay Gemma sounds like a better name anyway it's fine yeah it does something that and speaking of Rachel something that I don't think will age well is how many times Rachel's character kept crying and getting teary-eyed <laughs> and like almost every emotional scene she always had to like get teary-eyed and I just think like can't she just kind of be more powerful without getting so emotional oh no way no <laughs> way I don't know if that's Constance's choice to say, like, you know, and then she's going to turn on the waterworks. Or maybe, you know, John Chu as the director is like, I want you to cry at this point. I want you to cry at this point. I want you to happy, sad, you know. Oh, hold on, hold on. I think it helps to build multi-dimensions to her. Because, mm. yes, she actually comes off as being, like, this really hard person who's very rational, right? That's how they start off the film. She's very rational. She's doing mind games. Yeah. But then when you're going to a spa on a private island and your bed is just like fish guts and shit everywhere like come on you're gonna be a little bit rattled yeah. by that right can, can we can we talk about how absurd his his reaction was i would be like who the fuck did this but he's like oh, yes. i'm so sorry it wasn't just the fish right i'm like bitch like there's a fucking dead fish on my bed that's a, <laughs> that's a long reaction for you to have exactly it was because he would he was like uh, this has happened before, but I don't want to tell you that. <laughs> He's like, huh? oh, it didn't scare you off? Oh, shit, damn. He's like, what kind uh. of fish was it this time? Uh. <laughs> what an inappropriate reaction. It was just a fish. Nothing else happened, right? Uh, I'm sorry. Is this supposed to be something worse beyond it as a dead fish, you idiot? I think he knew because he was also she was also the family's lawyer, right? And oh, she, yeah, uh, yeah. She probably has a lot more dirt on him and the family couldn't overreact. You know, she, Rachel was crying a lot. And like during that uh, wedding scene where like the water fills up, it's all dream state or whatever. And like people are crying. I cried a bit. But then like, you know, you have Rachel and, uh, and uh, Nick's character like I fucking each other just like... <gasps> Oh my god, I'm in love. And they're like looking at each other. <laughs> okay, can I just tell you that um, when we were watching it during one of my company gatherings, and the guys totally ruined it. They're like, oh, it looks like someone backed up the toilet. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That's what you were getting out of this? I'm I'm crying right now. And you're like, oh, toilet humor. <laughs> <laughs> It's a pretty good joke, though. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but if I was there, I would have been laughing. Yeah, I would have been laughing, too. <laughs> Alan, so talk about some of the wealth and how the economics in Singapore work. Yeah, socioeconomic uh, progression of Singapore. So... Uh, let me take you into my little enclave here of deep dive rabbit hole research. 
the takeaway is that prior you had Singapore, which was uh, you know parts of territories along with Malaysia that were under direct British Crown control around 1867, and you know Singapore really became a hub for a lot of migrants who wanted to seek their own fortune. So, mm-hmm. for example, you had folks in China who were making their money, but because of the uh, oppressiveness of the government, they fled to enclaves like Hong Kong, and so that's why you have a lot of these rich. Chinese folks who lived in Hong Kong for such a long time, and then of course with the no, now political situation always surrounding Hong Kong, a lot of migrants in China moved to Singapore because it was way outside of the control of China. So you had you know a big wave of immigration between 1840 to 1940 of folks leaving China. About 20 million folks from China leaving to Southeast Asia, specifically or、uh, majority to Singapore. And you know, traditionally wealthy Chinese Malaysian family from further up the Malaysian Peninsula,、um, you know, they immigrated to Singapore. And here are the biggest things that they、uh, career progressions that they got into to really grow their wealth. And you, they portrayed it well in the movie. It was obviously real estate. Think of like San Jose and the Silicon Valley prior to all the big tech companies coming here. It was farmland, and not outside of real estate, it was shipping and banking.、Uh, you know, the reason why is because a lot of these folks who left、uh, from Hong Kong from China, they had you know English educations, which is why they mentioned you know a British boarding school. Oh yeah,、and、because they had the British education, they were allowed or they had the opportunity to trade with the British, which allowed them to continuously grow their wealth. But the problem is that, like, it's only a small subset of these British or Westernized educated Malaysians. You have a large wealth disparity gap because you have the small the small amount of rich families that were able to make it because they had the right education,、mm-hmm. similar to what it is in Cal or not California in the United States.、Uh, and then last bit,、um, Singapore is determined to attract a lot of immigrants、uh, as it stands today. With the luring factors like low tax rates, a stable and safe government, and a well-regulated banking systems, and that's why you still see a lot of very rich Chinese families still immigrating to、uh, to Singapore because,、uh, in order to really grow their business, they have to get away from a communist party like the CCP. Communist party. CCP. CCP. I had an extra C in there for fucking. <laughs> Bring your own communism. <laughs> Extra communism. <laughs> Extra communism. The communist squared of China.、Uh, the, but they move. They they go to Singapore because this is a.、Uh, it still has a low tax rate. It's very favorable to yeah, yeah.、Uh, entrepreneurs. So it's a lot of old money and new money、uh, folks in that area who are trying to continue their growth、uh, wealth gap. And then you have the children of these wealthy families just. Growing up in wealth, continuing it. That's why they want to stay in the family business, living it up. That's why they're able to live this extravagant life because that's all they know. Because it's a small subset of families. And just to add a little bit more, there are forty-four billionaires currently living in Singapore. Singapore is actually one of the、yep. most expensive cities in the world, even to the hot pot billionaire. <laughs> yes, Heidi Lau. There you go, and also one of the co-founders of Facebook. So the total amount of billionaires in Singapore rack up a worth combined one hundred and eleven point seven billion dollars, and this is based off of the latest Forbes real-time billionaires list,、mm. right? So you know there is a lot of ultra wealthy, right? 
I think uh, th- I think there shouldn't be any billionaires in the world. But it does go on to note, like you know, there are there is quite a bit of wealth going around. So you know, while the Silicon Valley itself has you know over fifty billionaires in itself, you can be driving down one hundred and one, you're probably driving around millionaires and billionaires that you don't even know about. Um, that kind of just boggles my mind, right? I know it does. It's kind of crazy. Los Altos, Woodside, Los Gatos. Yep. Even San Jose, Palo Alto. Oh, Palo Alto. Okay, can I just tell you, I was walking down Market once and um, bank transaction receipt hit up against my leg. I picked it up and it said how much the balance was in that account alone. And it was something like $400,000. And I was like, I nearly choked. At that point, I was making like 35000 And I was like, you just like happen to have this laying around in your. It's like fuck it. I know exactly, and it said like he took out like a hundred dollars. That was it, right? <laughs> <laughs> like he he needed to go to the bar or something. And I was yeah. like, what the fuck? Why do I have this? No, nah, he needed to wipe his ass. That's what he needed to do with a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, I need to go to the bank real quick and just uh, there we go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, can I very quickly just interject a bit more about like the societal impact of how uh, wealth is growing in Southeast Asia? So like I, I did a private equity case on this at school and you know right now the reason why there's a lot of growth in Southeast Asia uh, particularly is because there's a swelling middle class there's rising demand for natural resources and and most importantly there's antiquated infrastructure. Mm. So what does that mean? There's a company that I did a study on in my class it's called Mekong Capital which is based in Vietnam. And so you have a lot in Vietnam is in Southeast Asia obviously. Is it? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. I, I mean, you kind of do. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just kidding. In the, in the business world, they classify it in Southeast Asia. In the case, it talked about how a lot of private equity firms are finding new opportunities in Southeast Asia because there's so much growth. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a middle class that continues to grow up in this wealth. And similar to what we talked about in Mulan, where, you know, uh, they wanted to, they being Disney wanted to cater the movie to that audience of Chinese folks who are continuing to grow in their wealth. You have a lot of these companies growing in Sil- or Southeast Asia that has a lot of opportunity to build on their wealth. And so these companies focus on that area. Right. And also Singapore, you know, back in 2018 census, they have about 5.6 million people living on a 280 uh, square mile, like, island Mm -hmm. but there isn't much space right Uh, you know i think it is really interesting to see like how you have these uber rich areas of singapore and then you still have pockets of well poverty in there as well yep because the people who are not making nearly as much still have to cater to the ultra rich as well um one thing i also wanted to note uh crazy rich asians actually gave off this impression that because it did so well in the box office that it maybe did a lot for singapore uh tourism singapore uh tourism ministry actually noted that it didn't do so much for them in itself but it that is to say singapore did continue to grow their tourism 14% year over year. So if you look at the overall, just like how many people are going to Singapore, it definitely has continued to grow. But you can't attribute all of that success to Crazy Rich Asians. I want to end it on this last take. So considering everything that you guys talked about, Basically, I think to sum it all up is that power begets power. If you are that one family who is smart enough and lucky enough and opportunistic enough to take advantage of 
environment where you can use your money to get more wealth, then you become immune to the realities that most people have to suffer through. I want to relate it back to Crazy Rich Asians in the opening scene where you see Eleanor Young walk into the hotel and she experiences discrimination by the hotel staff, basically suggesting that she doesn't have a room here because she's Asian. They should, she should go to Chinatown. Little be known to them is that she's actually super rich because her husband's super rich who buys the hotel right there on the spot. And then there's that moment where, you know, her character, or at least as an audience member, as an Asian person, you're looking at the hotel staff with egg on their face, like, ah, you got you. But look, I understand in this scene in the movie, it's supposed to illustrate how Eleanor overcomes discrimination by the hotel staff. You know, it's meant to be like this small win for us Asians. But I also think it illustrates Eleanor's ability to combat and seemingly be immune to racism by way of having wealth and power, right? Wealth and power that is obtained through her husband's or her family's real estate business, a conquest that turned Singapore's jungle land, you know, like into profitable land, right? Profitable in a sense that it really only benefits her family or like a small group of families and you know, in a grand scheme of things, a small percentage of British educated people, you know, are getting back to what Alan said. So again, I think I think on the face of it, while it's shown as Eleanor being able to counter or like rise above racism, it's the exception and not the rule. Right. And there's this stealthy narrative of like social hierarchical ascendancy through white assimilation that if you succeed in the capitalistic structures, you're good. Right. But we have to remind ourselves it's the same structure that's been built by white people that's also only only benefited from the oppression of like brown people. Right. I think you pose it very interestingly because basically it's a pay for play. Right. If yes. You pay for power. Mm. Then you can be able to wield it. And you have some people who are kind of who are trying to give back, such as Jack Ma. But also how much of that is just like a power play for being able to have like good tax write offs. It, it definitely is like this, this classist thing, you know, when you make enough money, you transcend racism and now you are in classism. But that doesn't solve like the root issue, right? Mm-hmm. What it does is that you're, you're following, uh, you, you know how to work the system. The system is the issue. Okay. We don't want to, and let me be right. You know, it's not to say that if you do work hard enough, and you do make your, your way to be successful in any right, whether that involves high amount of wealth or becoming rich and stuff like that. No one should take that away from you. But in the grander scheme of things, the system itself is not working best for everyone. But it creates that narrative. What it does is it creates the narrative is that those who don't uh, assimilate and accumulate wealth didn't work hard enough. And it's like, I mean, that's not the case, you know, that's not always yeah. the case. It's interesting that you want to end on this super controversial topic <laughs> because <laughs> what else, because what I'll say is that um, the the false pretense that meritocracy works is actually built on the benefit of uh, someone else's oppression. Yes, right. For me personally, we should uh, try to build a system that actually helps to benefit even the those in poverty. And the true system that works actually wouldn't have people in poverty. Yes, exactly. There wouldn't be poverty. Gosh, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, (laughs) Let me prompt you. Let me prompt you with a quote. In an interview with Kevin Kwan, someone asked him, like, what was the best reaction that he received after this movie? And he said, 
is a story. He basically told a story of two white men admitting that they cried during the film, stating it's great to hear that because that's what we believe from the beginning that this story transcends race. <laughs> one of the <laughs> one of the critiques about that is is like really Kevin Kwan of a movie that's all Asian and supposedly c- celebrating Asian American culture. Your favorite or best reaction of this movie is your approval of two white men. Right, so that's why some people are saying, like, really, it's not the fact that you're pushing the progression of Asian American stories; it's that you're getting white approval. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start off by saying I don't agree at all with he's saying because it, it's it plays into exactly what we talked about, where the only way that Asians feel as if they've achieved something is if the the master race, the the white people, are like, "Good job, buddy, you did it. You worked. Hard. I cried. It's good." You worked hard. Shit, now shut up and, and just keep doing my taxes or whatever. I hate that. Uh, and, and it goes back to Renee Bob, a really good point that I wanted to talk about because typically, at least in mostly Asian families, predominantly the, the big three, the Koreans, Chinese, and Japanese, the moment they become somewhat successful, they become more Republican. And, and by that, I mean like they become more conservative for their fiscal policies and then they drag along their social policies along with them. So what does that mean? It means that you have Asian families who become successful, who start to protect certain interests or interests that disservice the others from which they came from. So they have a, I've got mine, I'm good. And I don't need to care for the other people where I came from. And so you have people where I always, I'm going to straight up tell them, not all skin folk are kin folk. And so you have Asian people who become successful, then support policies that keep other Asian people down. Yep. Uh, these are the Chinese people who will vote against affirmative action because they're like, oh, well, this is going to be going against my fucking child. Well, just because you didn't get into Berkeley doesn't mean you're not going to be successful at fucking UC Davis. So shut the fuck up and allow people to have equitable opportunities. Thank you. Preach. I'm, I'm all about this because like, you know, I, I earned my way to uh, a great university, but like, I, I recognize that like it only because, you know, I, I, I probably took another seat from someone else. But I recognize that and I'm privileged by it. But at the same time, I'm not going to keep someone down from having the opportunities that I had the opportunity to get. And let me segue this to saying this is what happened with 50 fucking cent. He uh, he's he's rich. He's made a good job for him in the club. And then he supports Trump because there's a fucking policy that where Biden says he's going to increase your taxes if you earn more than 400 million now or $400,000. And for God's sakes, these people need to understand it's a marginal tax rate. So you whatever the portion that's above that, that portion gets taxed. And like he's like. Oh, I'm going to vote for Trump because he supports the things that I care about when the fucking thing that he raps about is coming from poverty, coming from a system that Trump it keeps black people in. So it's like clearly this is a representation of what Asian, some Chinese people do where they become wealthy and then they support policies that keep other Asian people down. And this is what happened in Boston. I'm sorry. I just got to get this preach, out of my system. Preach. But like this is what happened in Boston where you have these fucking Chinese people who are like, no, keep us <laughs> – 
uh, classified as Asians because Chinese people recognize they benefit from being in a yes. conglomerate of Asians because they have other sub-Asian groups like Vietnamese, Cambodian, whatever, that don't have great opportunities. And so if these Chinese people are put in that category, then it allows these Chinese people to benefit off of that. But then it disservices the other Asian people who have a higher bar to reach that these Cambodians, Vietnamese, uh, other ethnic minorities in Asia can't meet. Thank you, Alan. And can I just go ahead and say, like, um, I'm really tired of being Hmong American and being the only time you t people bring up about being Hmong is about how we're against the model minority. Like, I, I kind mm, of, yeah. you know, like, I kind of hate that. Like, there's so much more complexity to being uh, Southeast Asian and the Asian minorities that other than just being not the model minorities. Uh, preach, Alan. I had to get it off my chest. I'm sorry. I, I, these, these fucking Asian people. Oh, my God. <laughs> Not all skin folk or kin folk, okay? People are people are gonna like do research and be like, "Oh shit, Alan's Asian? I thought he was a white guy." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I get it. I fall to the stereotype. I, I work in finance. I'm at Berkeley. I get it. But like, I I accept affirmative action. I'm for it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Drop that mic. So um, we'll kind of end it on a high note. Tune in next time for an episode of Real Asian Pod. What should we call? Should we call rap heads? No, rap rappers. Uh, that's stupid.